Good morning. Uh, the scripture reading for this morning's sermon is found in the book of Matthew, chapter 24, verses 22 through 31. It's on page 829 in the Pew Bibles. Black Bibles. Don't have pews. And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, look, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe it. For false Christs and false prophets will arise and perform great signs and wonders, so as to lead astray, if possible, even the elect. See, I have told you beforehand, so if they say to you, look, he is in the wilderness, do not go out. If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will darken and the moon will not give its light, and the stars will fall from heaven, and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call, and they will gather his elect from the four winds, from one end of heaven to the other. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, two things. First, I love fall festivals. I love them. We hope to do a fall festival again here, so just for the record. Number two, uh, I'm Ryan Phelps, and we have, I'm the pastor here. We've been in a series in the summer. It's a short series called Six Questions Christians Ask. These are some of the questions that even if you've approached as a Christian, you still struggle with. You struggle to, to work through, to think about to appropriate in your life. And so we've been working through those, suffering, the Bible, things like that, the church. We hit a pretty big one this morning. And in, and, and in a sense, it's a short series, or it's a, it's a two-part series, because this morning we're going to talk about the end of days, and next week we're going to talk about the end of life, what happens when we die. So it should be pretty interesting. But we need, we need God's help before we go into this this morning. So let's pray. God, I pray mainly that we would be humbled this morning, that we would be awed at your great power, your great wonder, your sovereignty. God, too often we lose sight of you. We forget that you are there. We forget that you are sustaining the world by the power of your word, that you are keeping us safe. And so we recognize you this morning. Before we even go into this this morning, we call you God. And we say humbly that we need your help. God, these are not easy things to think about or deal with. And yet they are so important. And they are so important. And that means that they are for our good. May we see that this morning with new eyes. In Jesus' name, amen. So our question this morning is, how is the world going to end? How is the world going to end? It's actually not a crazy question. It's not just a question that weirdo Christians ask together in churches. People 
everywhere think about this question. Everyone seems to be asking it. Everyone seems to be facing it at, at some time or the other with their own death or with just the craziness that is the world. I was watching uh, Ken Burns' documentary on the Great Dust Bowl. It's amazing if you haven't seen it. It's about the, the terrible coming together, the conflagration of man's ingenuity and nature's brutality. It happened in the 30s during the Great Depression. It was described this way uh, by Ken Burns, the worst man-made ecological disaster in American history in which the frenzied wheat boom of the great plow-up followed by a decades-long drought during the 1930s, nearly swept away the breadbasket of the nation. No money, little food, no rain, consistent death. And the main thing, the great dust bowl, had to do with these dust clouds. These unthinkably, unimaginably huge, black, powerful, choking clouds of dust that would take over homes, towns, even states, and anyone who stood in their way. As I'm watching it, the only word that I could describe it as, as I was thinking, if I were in that, in that time, in that place, I would have called it apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. They didn't say that in the movie they thought it was the end of the world, but you can just imagine that they felt that they were on the brink of eternity. We are, as a people, consumed with this idea that the world is going to end. It's going to stop. There's an, an end point, an end date. We read about it, or many have lived through it, plagues, wars, shifting geopolitics, the threat of nuclear Armageddon. We consume movies, books, TV shows about it. One of the first movies I ever watched as a kid was War Games. Remember that with Matthew Broderick? Love that movie. Just talking about the end of the world. Nuclear Armageddon. Now we can kind of laugh at some of the stuff that we think about, like Y2K. Remember Y2K? We all chuckled, but when that clock ticked over, we all secretly wondered, uh-oh, I hope nothing happens. And the Mayan prophecy, remember of 2012, it didn't happen. And we can laugh as we look back on it now. But we all kind of secretly wondered, did they have it right? Is the world going to end in 2012? It seems that in culture, at least in, in art, we have moved past even just describing how the world is going to end and what it looks like after. We've, been, we've, we've started to describe what we think the end of the world will look like after, after the end of the world. I heard a Jewish commentator say that the reason that we are, in, we are fatuated, infatuated with zombie movies, with post-apocalyptic movies and books and TV shows, is because we believe deep down we are fragile. That this world cannot stay the way it is forever. That something catastrophically bad is going to happen. We just have days, years, who knows. Christian or not, deep down, we think we know that the world is going to end. Marilyn Manson, remember him? Old rocker. He spoke actually very clearly about this. When he was asked in an interview in 2001, the most disheartening thing that, he, that had ever happened to him, he answered this way, pretty fascinating. He said, I think that the world's been ending since the day I was born. 
And it keeps beating toward that every day. One one part of me wishes it would just get over with it. The other half of me has this optimism that I can contribute something worthwhile. The end of the world gets us thinking not just how it will happen, but why it matters. Why it matters. Christianity, of course, it teaches that the world is going to end. We are no different than most people. We think the world is going to end. The world as we know it will cease to exist. It will at least change. Things are going to get bad and then probably really bad and then something amazing will happen. And yet, we don't think about this subject easily either. This is not something that we approach as Christians with glee, with ease. Either we are consumed by it on the one one hand, this is a small percentage of people, or I think the mass majority of us, we avoid it. We don't talk about it. We don't think about it. It's boring. It's depressing. It's complicated. It's unimportant. All I know is that Jesus is coming back. That's all i got to know. Those things are not true. That it's boring, complicated, depressing. Maybe a little bit, but not really. And especially that last one, that it's unimportant. The Bible talks so frequently about the end of days precisely because it is so important. The details of the end of the world are meant to shape and change our details now. We are to live in light of the coming king. And so we are going to try to, we're going to open up this can of worms just for 30 minutes or so and see what we can do, see what we can cover. Now, so we, we cannot cover everything. So if you were hoping to talk about millenniums and raptures this morning, it's not really going to come up. You can come talk to me after about that or it'll be another sermon some other time. But we are going to cover the main thing. We are going to cover the big details, what we know, and why it matters. Three points this morning. The signs, the lamb, and the end. The signs, the lamb, and the end. One, the signs. Matthew 24, 1. If you have your Bibles, please read along with me in the silence. Matthew 24, 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away. And when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But when he answered them, you see all these, do you not? Truly, I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. So you can see who the players are, right? That's Jesus and his disciples. They're probably coming out of the temple. They've worshipped or done something there. And I see it and. This is, the, this is the thing. This is the place that they, they knew so well. It, it meant so much to them to be at the temple. They probably hadn't seen it very often. It was all the way in Jerusalem. But they saw it, and, and they knew that it was so important. And Jesus says to them, this place, this temple, will be gone soon enough. Now, they're not too taken aback by this. I'm not totally sure why. They probably knew that things needed to change and this makes sense to them. Maybe the temple needs to come down for things to get better. So they don't say, no, this can't be, but they do have some questions. They do have some questions, and their questions are, when and what? Verse 3, 
As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be? And what will happen? And what will be the sign of your coming and at the end of the age? So, did you hear the questions? When is this going to happen? And what will the signs be? And this launches Jesus into a long discourse called the Olivet Discourse because he was on the Mount of Olives about the end of the temple, about the end of Jerusalem and the end of the world. Now, this is a complex, debated passage of Scripture. Thoughtful men and women disagree about things in here. And the, ma- the main disagreement, just to tell you up front, is this question. Is Jesus, in, these, in this passage, in Matthew 24 and 25, is he predicting things that have already happened? In other words, he was predicting things then that would happen within the disciples' lifetimes. And so for us, they've happened in the past. Now, as far as I can tell, I think the answer to that question is yes at least partially, to to some degree. Yes, some of the things that Jesus is going to talk about, the events, the prophecies that he lays out, have already happened in the past. They happened when Jerusalem fell, when the temple fell. So some of those things happen in the disciples' lifetimes. But I do not think this is the whole story. There are too many things that either didn't happen or are pointing forward. And so I think that Matthew 24 is a foreshadowing. A foreshadowing of events to come. These things that he, were, that he talks about were merely first signs, the first events in a long history of signs and events. The signs of the end of the world. I remember pretty vividly all the, the times my kids were born. And my wife went into labor and when they came, and it was so amazing. I was looking at my son the other day just marveling at him, just seeing him going, how is that even possible? And that first time you see them, oh, it is just remarkable. The joy, the relief when I saw my wife's eyes catch the sight of her baby. But the getting to that point, not so easy. Sheer horror, she might say. Sharp, increasing pains. Swelling fears. The lingering thought that Maybe this is not okay. This doesn't feel right. Something great was coming, but what she had to go through to get there, not so great. That's how Jesus describes the coming end of the world. It is though the world is in labor. This is what he says in Matthew 24, 8. All these are but the beginning of the birth pain. In other words, we are straining towards a day when all will come together. Marked by painful signs, we are hurtling toward a day when things will finally end. And he wants us to know these signs. They are here that we would look at them and know them. So what are they? What are some of the signs? He says, false messiahs and prophets are going to come. That's the first sign. Verse 5, for many will come in my name saying, I'm the Christ. And they will lead many astray. And then more pro- and he says later that prophets will come trying to get people to not believe in him. So we so we with our kids we tell them pretty often don't talk to strangers like any good parent would do. Sometimes we add this. Even some even if someone comes up and they they tell you that they know us, they know mommy and daddy and that you've got to go with them because we're hurt or we need help. Don't listen to them. Don't listen to them. Run, find some help. 
In other words, don't trust anyone who says they are speaking for us. They do not have your best interest at heart. Jesus says that there will be men and women who will come and try to lead us astray. They will try to get us to not believe that Jesus is the King, the Savior. They do not have our best interest at heart. This is actually the basis for joining any church. You walk in those doors. You listen to the preacher. Does he preach the true Jesus, the real Jesus, or is he preaching someone else? Let me just quickly say something about the Antichrist. The Antichrist, we hear that a lot. The Antichrist, talk, people talk about it way too much in politics. The Antichrist is someone real, someone that is going to come who will attack the people of God in the last days. There will be a final Antichrist, I think. But John says that there will be a lot of Antichrist, and you can probably think of some of those men and women in your head. They come as a prelude. And so I think that this means that right now, the world is full of false messiahs and prophets and even antichrists. We must know the signs. Another sign, wars and disasters. Verse 6, And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed, for this must take place, but the end it is not yet. For nation will rise against nation. Wars and rumors of wars. I, I swear that's a, that's a book out there of the history of the war, world. You could define the world by the wars that we have engaged in as a people. History re- revolves around these conflicts. Now, my kids don't really know about this yet. They don't know about the perils of the world out there. I can't imagine growing up in the 60s when they consistently were doing drills in case there was nuclear Armageddon. I actually remember in the 1980s when it was this, the Cold War was still happening and they taught us how to, how to behave in the case of a, a nuclear bomb. I went home to my mom like, what in the world is this about? Fearful. Wars and rumors of wars. He says that many will happen. Many have happened and many are coming. Syrians today, those living in Syria must believe that it is the end of the world. And this is nothing of the natural disasters that we see and experience. They are often, we often experience them personally. The signs of the end of the age. False prophets, wars. He says persecution. Persecution is coming. Verse 9, then they will deliver you up to, to, up to tribulation and put you to death. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. This is hard to think about. But it has been a constant reality for men and women of the faith since Christ has come. One of the most important books that I read as a youth was Tortured for Christ by Richard Wormbrand. He was a man who was so sure of his relationship with Jesus that he allowed himself to be captured for Christ two different times. He served two different eight-year prison sentences in a Romanian communist prison simply for preaching the gospel. When we hear of persecution, when we begin to face it ourselves, we are reminded the end is coming. Sinfulness and lawlessness. Verse 12, And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. This is a warning He's saying, watch out. Watch out for these signs. Lawlessness, sinfulness will in 
increase. Now, now I can talk about all the big things like abortion and human trafficking and terrorism. Those things, yes, unchecked lawlessness, sinfulness. But maybe the sign that we see the most, that we deal with the most, is the growing sinfulness of the people that we interact with. David Wells, a professor of mine, said that worldliness is what makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. Worldliness is what makes sin look normal and righteousness look strange. More and more, what we do, what we believe is becoming strange. It is getting harder and harder to not seem, in other words, like a weirdo. My daughter's uh, school last year, they sent home a, a permission slip. They wanted her to watch a movie. And it wasn't the worst movie in the world, but it was definitely not a movie that we thought that our second grader should be watching. And so when we met with the teacher, we said to her face, we said, listen, she can't watch this. We, we don't give her our permission. And I will never forget the look on her face. This teacher is not an immoral person. She served our daughter so well. We loved her. But for her, righteousness is becoming strange. Paul says this in 2 Timothy 3, 1 through 5. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. For people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to their parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power. Those are the signs. They are obvious to us. They are happening. They are clear. But they are not clear to everyone. They are not so obvious to everyone. Jesus says that though these things will be happening all around, many will not notice it. Many will not see it coming. He describes that when he comes, it will be like a thief in the night. He describes the men and women living in those times like the men and women living before the flood in Noah eating and drinking and being merry. The signs were there that God was displeased with the world, but they will not see it. But we must. How will the world end? It's such an important question. It is such an important question because it changes how we see things, how we interact with the world. It is our lens by which we see and deal with everything that is going on around us. How will we respond? That's what Jesus is saying. How will you respond? You need to be prepared. That's why I'm speaking to you now. When these things happen, we must not be dismayed. We must not lose heart. When we hear of wars, when we hear of rumors of wars, when we are in the middle of war, we do not despair. When we feel the pressure to become like the world, we hold fast. When false teachers come into our midst, we are ready to stand our ground. One of the main things that Paul says that you must do is to begin to detach yourself from the things of this world. Detach yourself. This is what he says. It's pretty shocking. 1 Corinthians 7. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. From now on, let those who have wives live as though they had none. 
And those who mourn as though they were not mourning. And those who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. And those who buy as though they had no goods. And those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. For the present form of this world is passing away. That is the world. That is what is going on in front of us. He says this to us. We listen to him. We are detaching ourselves from the world. We are detaching ourselves from the things that are holding us down. He's not saying that you should stop loving your wife. No, not at all. He's not saying that you should stop buying things or that you should never mourn. But you should not do so in such a way that you are attached to them and not to Christ. You must be attached to him. Those are the signs. To the Lamb. To the Lamb. Many of the signs will not be obvious to all. That's what we just said. Except for one. One will be obvious. And it will not be a sign, really. It'll be the thing. It'll be the thing. So we drove through, I've told this story a million times, I love this story. We drove through Kansas when we were just married, my wife and I, back in 2001. Drove through Kansas to get down to Florida. And the reason that I mentioned Kansas is because there's nothing there. I swear to you, there's, there's nothing in Kansas. You drive down the road, you never see anything. It's flat, that's it. It's just flat. Except someone had the bright idea to start to put signs up along the road. And the sign read, come see the largest gopher in the world. And when you are driving on that road for that long, you think to yourself, sign me up. Sign me up. I will come see the largest gopher in the world. I will come see the largest anything for that matter. And then when we finally got there, we went to the back. There it is, 40 feet tall and made out of wood. The promise was way greater, greater than the payoff. The promise of those signs to see the greatest go from the world was greater than the payoff. Listen, the opposite is true of the return of Christ. We cannot describe it. He could not even really describe what would come. At some point in the future, he will return and it will be the greatest, most astonishing, astounding thing the world has ever seen. The coming Lamb of God. Listen to verse 29. Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will fall from heaven and the powers of heaven will be shaken. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And he will send out his angels with a loud trumpet call and they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. We are meant to know about this. Why? To see him, to wait to watch. So what will it be like? Let's just try to describe it. First, it will be public. It will be public. Everyone will see it. Everyone will hear it. Jesus says that, the, that his coming will be so obvious and so clear that you should be able to dismiss all other reports of his arrival. Verse 26. So if they say to you, look, in the, look he's in the wilderness. Do not go out. 
If they say, look, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe it. For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. And he says this at the end, wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Now that last part is strange. It's kind of weird, okay? The vultures gathering around the corpse. But it actually, it makes sense to me now if I understand this passage correctly. I think it's simply saying it is hard to miss vultures circling out in the sky. And I know this because I saw it a couple weeks ago, a few months ago. I was looking in my backyard and I saw some hawks flying around. But then there were more hawks and more and they started to land, and as they landed, I, I said to myself, those, those aren't hawks. Those, those are something different. And so uh, we and a bunch of, of my kids ran up the hill, and our neighbors were out. The rafteries are back there. They go to our church. They were out, and they were looking, too, with binoculars. And I go, what are those things? I said, those are turkey vultures. Turkey vultures. I'd never even heard that word before. But that's what they were. They had found a, a dead animal of some sort. They were coming down. When they were circling around, you could not miss it. You could not miss it. More publicly visible than any U2 concert or Million Man March or Super Bowl. The whole world will see the coming of Christ. And they will see it because it will be glorious. That's the second thing. It will be glorious. You know the life of Jesus. He came down in relative obscurity. No one really knew who he was, that he was even born. He he became a meek carpenter in his life. He was born of humble parents. He spent his whole life essentially trying to hide himself from the crowds. And he died on that cross, a sinner's death. Now he did rise again in glory. And then he ascended the same way that he will return. But when he does, it will be all the more glorious. Listen to verse 30 again. Then will appear in heaven the sign of the Son of Man, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power, and listen, with great glory. The word glory means emanating force like the rays of the sun, but it can also mean Weight, heaviness, the blasting trumpets, the blinding lights, the huge, swift, powerful, untold number of angels, the glory of Jesus coming into the sky will not just be known, it will be felt. Jesus will come publicly, gloriously, and last victoriously. Victoriously. Jesus is coming back Not to die again, but as the great hero and conquering king. His presence will signify that he has finally defeated the powers of darkness. He is coming to right what has been wrong. Revelation 9 says this, From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And when, and when will, he will rule them with a rod of iron, he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God, the Almighty. When we see him, he is a victorious king. He's come wielding the power of his father, his very wrath, which is why the world will mourn. That is why the world will mourn. 
On the one hand, Christians will mourn their very sin once again. They will live out finally what he said in the Beatitudes, that we are to be a people spiritually uh, desperate, needy, mourning our sin. But for those who do not believe, they will instantly regret their unbelief. He's coming when? When is he coming? I don't know. It's not just because I'm bad at math. It's because he doesn't know. He didn't know. That's actually really confounding to me. How the world that how in the world Jesus himself could not know when he was coming. He was God. Well, this is what we must say that Jesus is not just God, that he is fully man. Matthew 24, 36. But concerning that day and the hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father. Only We know that Jesus laid aside his dignity, his glory, and we know with this that he laid aside his knowledge. Here is a fully human Jesus who does not know when he will return, only the Father. Why is this? Again, as I started this point, so that we will watch, so that we will be ready. If he does not know, we cannot know. And so we must be on the edge of our toes, on the edge of our seat. Be ready for the coming of Christ. Friends, are you living that way? Brothers and sisters, are you living the way that you want to be when Jesus Christ comes back? Are we living out the lives that we want to when he returns? Are we living by faith and by grace alone? Jesus says it starkly in Luke 21. But watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. For it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place. And to stand before the Son of Man. Remain faithful. Remain committed to Christ. Stand on his solid rock as we just sang. Seek to live out pure and holy lives by his grace and his grace alone. Spread the word of his coming. We must be ready. We must be ready. The lamb. Last point this morning, the end. There are signs, the lamb will come, and then something happens after that. Something happens after that. What can we say? How can we describe it? Just one word. Justice. The final meeting out of justice on earth. And I just ask you, when he comes, how will he judge you? Revelation 20. I just want to read this. Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one according to them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into that lake of fire. Just listen to that last part again. If anyone's name 
was not found written in the book of life. He was thrown into the lake of fire. We are not a fire and brimstone church. We do not usually hit this. This is the truth of the word. Men and women gather before him. And he, the righteous judge, will judge them. For those who do not believe, for those who have not trusted on Christ, justice will be severe and final. And so I say to those who do not believe, believe today. You must have faith. You must trust that he is your savior. You must put your whole life on his. You are a sinner and he will clean you. You must trust that he is one for you, eternal life. Before he comes. Because on that day, it will be too late. When we see him coming in the clouds, the time will have passed. See the signs, believe his coming, and trust him today. But if you do, if you do, if you give your life to Jesus, joy awaits you. Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people. And God himself will be with him as their God. For Christians, when we ask this question, how will the world end? It should always end with this. It will end with great joy. The return of Jesus, as cataclysmic and terrifying as it will be, will simultaneously be our finish line. The home stretch, the top of the mountain. The coming of Christ is the coming for us. He is coming finally to save us. I'm sure you know the end of Revelation 21. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Jesus' second coming, it signifies the culmination of the gospel, that his death and resurrection defeated sin and death in our hearts, that his death and resurrection won our relationship with him. And so, friends, when we see the lightning, when we hear the trumpet blasts and feel them, when we feel the rushing wind of his coming presence and the tens of thousands of angels, we will feel the weight of glory of the gospel come true. Jeremy Rennie writes, When when Jesus comes again, he will gather you to himself. At long last, your fleeting fellowship with Christ will give way to direct contact as you finally see him face to face. You will go from being a refuge in this world to being a ruler of Christ. You will no longer be like Abraham and his family, camping out as strangers in the promised land. Instead, you will be like the Israelites, triumphantly following Joshua across the Jordan into your inheritance. When Jesus returns, you will be saved to sin no more, to grieve no more, to die no more for those who love Jesus. The end of the world will bring the fulfillment of hope. Yes, hope. Let's pray.
Oh God, may we end hopefully this morning. May we end seeing you. The Apostle Peter says that though we have not seen you with our eyes, yet we know you with our hearts. I pray this morning that that has become reality. In knowing the truth that you will come again in great power and glory. God, for those who have not trusted on you, enliven their spirits. Speak to them. Whisper to them that you are true, that you are real, that you are to be trusted. God, for the brothers and sisters here who are living out this life as well as they can, God, would you encourage them? Would you keep them on the path? Would you enable them to do great works in your name? God, we offer ourselves before you. You, the coming King, the Savior of the universe. Amen.